This podcast addresses Jacques Audiard's searing crime drama, Un Prophète. The recipient of the Grand Prix when it premiered at the 2009 Cannes Film Festival, the winner of Nine Césars and the BAFTA for Best Film Not in the English Language, reviewers placed it alongside the likes of The Godfather, Mean Streets, Scarface, Once Upon a Time in America and City of God. But it wasn't just film critics who raved. Reformed convicts hold it up as the closest thing cinema has yet delivered to the experience of life behind bars. ODR and his fellow writers, Thomas Biedegain, Abdelraouf Dafri and Nicolas Pufoli spent several years developing the script. Yet, despite the critics' comparisons, ODR insisted that he did not model his story on any of those titles. But although he did not attest to it, I have a sneaking suspicion that somewhere within his viewing list, ODR, an avowed cineast, drew inspiration from a 1960s Japanese action picture. More of which later, but for now, let's get ourselves familiar with our prison cell. Given that we are talking about crime, let us begin with a citation on truth. Jean-Luc Godard is often quoted as declaring, cinema is truth 24 times a second. Not entirely, because what Godard actually said was, cinema is truth 24 times a second, and every cut is a lie. So, when it comes to films set in prison, where does that cut lie? Outside of documentary, no film gives a completely honest depiction of life behind bars. At best, the most candid water down the experience, while others reframe it as religious allegory. Morgan Freeman's Red was only one of five men of colour in Shawshank State Penitentiary. Yet, repeated studies show that while African Americans make up for 13% of the US population, the same group accounts for 40% of all prison inmates. A similar disparity exists in Britain, where less than 13% of the population are ethnic minorities. Yet, they aggregate to 25% of people behind bars. Likewise, France. A study carried out by the Council of Europe found that the land of Rousseau, Voltaire and Montestique, yes, the very country that birthed the human rights movement, is among the continent's worst offenders. Barely 10% of France's population is Muslim. Yet, human rights groups estimate that between 40 to 50% of prisoners declare for their religion. But, if you were to accept cinema as the honest judge of social history, you would be forgiven for believing that the only group ever sent to prison were Caucasian Christians. You're going to get used to wearing them chains after a while, Luke. But you never stop listening to them clinking. Because they're going to remind you of what I've been saying. Are you on good? Wish you'd stop being so good to me, Captain. Don't you ever talk that way to me. Never! Uh, what we've got here is failure to communicate. Perhaps the reason for this is because, ever since Louis Lumiere first filmed his brother Auguste having breakfast with his wife Marguerite and their daughter André on the patio of the Parisian Maison, 
filmmakers have tended to make films about their own groups for their own groups. The same is true of literature, theatre and painting. As a consequence, from within this ethnically sealed bubble, even when found guilty of a crime, the likes of Cool Hand Luke have been portrayed as little more than benign and noble, even virtuous rebels, victims of a judicial system stacked against them. Then, once in prison, they are persecuted all over again, as sadistic wardens take it upon themselves to inflict the most brutal punishments. Hey! Hold the door! You hear me? Hello, Frank. In the old days, the warden would have come down that private passageway from his office to this execution chamber to witness the putting to death of a criminal. 120 men and four women were electrocuted in that chair before it was retired. Beautiful, isn't it? When I came to Gateway, it was falling apart, so I had it restored, put back into perfect working order to remind me of how things ought to be. From lockup in 1989, all the way back to 1939, with Each Dawn I Die, prison films have us believe that no matter how great his suffering, the Caucasian Christian male can never be defeated. Such is his spirit, he is impervious to temptation, corruption and abuse. Minorities, on the other hand, are weak, susceptible to evil, and impervious to reform. If ever a genre portrays ethnic superiority, it is the prison film. The officer said there's nothing to be afraid of. Cooperate, you'll be on the plane home. Alan Parker's adaptation of Billy Hayes' inaccurate memoir, Midnight Express, is yet another film that compromises the truth of prison life, and consequently, it becomes stylized, aestheticized, if not thoroughly romanticized. Consider the depiction of violence in Hollywood's prison films, or, for that matter, its gangster pictures. It is all choreographed to depict the main character in as favourable, if not as sanctified, a light as possible. Which brings me back to Ampofet. Odiard's film tells of Malik el Jabana, a French teenager of Algerian descent who is serving a six-year sentence for assaulting members of the police force. No sooner has Malik been processed by the prison clerk than he is coerced into murdering a fellow inmate. Here is Odriar talking with David Poland on the YouTube channel The Oral History of Hollywood about his approach to depicting violence on screen. Uh, the violence, he, he hates the violence, so mm -hmm. it has to be deplorable. So mm -hmm. it has to, if it's all choreographed, it becomes beautiful or different. And mm -hmm. so that's, it, it is deplorable and it has to be unbearable for him to, to be able to do it. So it, it does have that messy quality. It is contradictory, but fiction needs reality to, to exist. So that's, you have to nourish the fiction with the real. And it's not a contradiction, although it is. In order to render the violence in a more vivid way, and indeed deliver a more credible prison story, Odiar chose to cast a relative unknown, Taha Rahim, in the lead role of Malik. On Prophet was only Rahim's third feature film, and with just supporting appearances way down the cast list on a CV, this was his very first lead. 
Indeed, in Amprofet's very first sequence, Odier makes a point of Malik being strip-searched. He is then processed by the prison clerk, who asks him about his next of kin. Malik has none. Neither does he have any friends. In other words, he is a blank slate. Or, as Odier declared, the film is a story of someone who has no identity and no history. Which is why Odior cast a relative unknown. Here is Rahim talking with Husam Sam Azi on Azi's YouTube channel about how being cast in the lead has impacted on his life. You are one of the rare Arab actors who uh, play lead in Hollywood. This is very rare. Of course, because it's uh, part of uh, French history, you know, immigration and uh, I mean, cinema has to tell the truth to people, it has to show uh, what's happening in the street. I mean, uh, that's the proper thing of movies. So you have to deal with that. And uh, we have a great uh, Arabic or black community in France. So you need to uh, represent them. So it's getting better and better. At first, the film is very coy about Malik's ethnic and cultural identity. Are you religious, asked the clerk. Your religion? Do you go to prayers? Any dietary requirements? Nothing unusual, sir. Do you eat pork? No, yeah. The ambiguity will prove crucial almost immediately, because we see Malik passing as both Caucasian and Arabic, identities that he will soon learn can be dangerous and helpful. Quickly, Malik is approached by César Luciani. Portrayed by veteran actor Niels Agostrup, César is the head of the prison's Corsican gang. César wants Malik to kill an inmate, Rayeb, who is scheduled to give evidence in a trial against César's clan. If Malik doesn't agree, he will be killed. As far as César is concerned, Malik has a ready-made opportunity because for his part, Rayeb, played by Hisham Yaqabi, has already made sexual advances towards Malik. But Rayeb is on the lookout for possible attackers, so if Malik is to kill him, he will have to visit Rayeb in his cell with a concealed weapon. The method is explained. Take this razor blade and hide it in your mouth. Go down on Rayeb as if you are about to perform oral sex. And then, using your tongue, quickly thrust the razor out between your teeth, jump up and slit Rayeb's throat. Shocking as that sounds, Odiar then compounds it by showing Malik repeatedly practicing shuffling the razor blade about his mouth with his tongue. Each time he attempts to manoeuvre the instrument, the blade cuts into his cheeks and gums. The tension is so sharp you can almost taste your own blood. Then the attack itself comes. There is nothing about it that is stylized. It's not even methodical or ritualistic. If anything, it is existential. Kill or die. With cinematographer Stefan Fontaine using a handheld camera and jagged cuts delivered by Juliette Welfling, the attack is as real a depiction of a fatal act as you would ever not want to see. And that tactic is the epitome of the film's style. Both visually and sonically, what we see and hear feels utterly authentic. That drive towards authenticity is replicated right across the frame, from the drab colours in the yard, corridors and cells. The prisoners have no uniforms, 
instead dressed in a hodgepodge of coats, jackets, tracksuits, trainers and beanies. Yet, for all the realism that ODR and his cast infuse, the director resorts to moments of fantasy that somehow sit neatly alongside everything else. Having committed murder, Malik's victim returns to him. At first, these visitations are haunting, terrorising Malik in his sleep. But gradually, the nightmares weaken, to the point that Reyeb speaks to Malik, pointing things out to him about actions in the yard that Malik himself would not be aware of. Yet Odiar makes sure that Reyeb's fatal wounds are never hidden. When Reyeb smokes, the fumes drift easily from where Malik slit his throat. And then eventually, over time, Reyeb comes to be Malik's friend and mentor. Absurd as that transition may sound, as described in a podcast, Odiar's conceit is a brilliant one, completely novel to the prison genre. Brilliant because it doesn't just settle for being new, nor does it depict a fantasy that Reyeb may have forgiven Malik for his crime. Instead, ODR uses it to chart how Malik is not just coming to terms with the situation, but showing how hardened he has become to the horrors of life in the wing. Reconsider the extended arc of Malik's conversations with the dead Rayeb, and they become internal monologues, where Malik is debating with, going over, and reconciling himself not only to what he has done, but more specifically to his current situation and future life. And that is the key, because by having Rayeb return to Malik, the film is hinting for the first time that Malik may have a spiritual life. The previous year, where it also premiered at the Cannes Film Festival, Hunger earned Steve McQueen the camera door for best first film. There, Michael Fassbender's Bobby Sands debated the essence of his protest and incarceration with Father Dominic Moran, played by Liam Cunningham. You want me to argue about the morality of what I'm about to do and whether it's really suicide or not? For one, you're calling it suicide. I call it murder. And that's just another wee difference between us two. We're both Catholic men, both Republicans. But while you were poaching salmon and lovely kill Ray, we were being burnt out of our house in Rathcool. Right. Similar in many ways, Tom. But life and experience is focused our beliefs differently. You understand me? I understand. I have my belief. And in all its simplicity, that is the most powerful thing. So what's your statement by dying? Under McQueen's direction, Hunger is a visually and sonically austere experience. The camera rarely if ever moving, the sounds completely natural. Which means that while ODR ignored a whole host of Hollywood crime dramas, it would appear that McQueen was drawing on the transcendental style of Robert Bresson's 1956 masterpiece, A Man Escaped, which didn't let loose the camera or use music until the final blissful moments. By comparison, ODR's camera is agitated, darting and glancing in reaction to whatever is moving in front of it. As for the soundtrack, the ever-versatile Alexandre Desplat provides En Prophète with a brooding score. There is, of course, contemporary pop music, but with regard songs, it is disappointing to learn that ODR initially wanted to name his film Gotta Serve Somebody by Bob Dylan. That chronicles the dilemma of choosing between God and the devil, and would, I think, have been an ideal title for a story where Malik has to navigate his time and space between the Arab and Corsican groups. Ultimately, however, ODR was persuaded otherwise, mainly because of the translation. I mean, pardon my French, but je dois servir quelqu'un is just too damn cumbersome. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve some.
so, what was the 1960s Japanese action picture from which I suggested ODR drew inspiration? Think about it. While in prison, Malik works both the Corsican and Muslim gangs against one another, which is what happened in Akira Kurosawa's Yojimbo. There, Toshiro Mifune played the fearless ronin, Kuwabatake Sanjuro, who turned the warring Ushitori and Saba clans against one another, dividing and conquering both. However, Kurosawa's plot bears a passing resemblance to Dashiell Hammett's hardball novel from 1929, Red Harvest. So, if not Hollywood crime dramas, then perhaps Un Prophet owes at least a little debt to American crime fiction. (laughs) 